Good morning, everybody. Last week, Deirdre walked us through several questions that Paul is using to structure his dialogue with the, the judge. There's this character known as the judge in the, in, the, in the book of Romans, and he represents the weaker brother and sisters in the, in the church there in, the, in Rome. Their faith, they were called weaker brothers because their, their faith was immature. They had believed in the gospel, but they still believed they needed to hold to some of the traditions in the Mosaic law that God had given to the nation of Israel. So of the, all of the questions that Paul uses, there are two that I want to go back to as a little of an intro to the, to the passage for this morning. The first question is, is the question that Paul would expect from his audience, and he says, what advantage then has the Jew? And Paul replied that they did indeed have an advantage as a people. They had received the oracles of God, they had received the word of God, and that gave them an advantage in that they had a knowledge and understanding of God's will for humanity. They had access to that, and with that knowledge, they could know and follow God in a way that other nations couldn't. But the second question asked was, are we Jews any better off? Now, where the Jews would answer yes... And that is how they perceived it. Paul resounded with a firm no. Not at all. The Jews are not better off than the other nations. For he had already said that the Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he went on to lay out a number of, of passages from the, the law, the prophets, and the writings from the Jewish Bible that backed up his point. And in presenting this orally, so Phoebe had the letter from Paul and she was directed to deliver these, this, this letter to all of these house churches in Rome. And this would have been one of those moments when she put Israel on the same plane as all of the other nations. There would have been gasps. There would have been some belligerent disagreements. And she then would have moved on to the next verse, and it says this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that would have been her, her follow-up to these gasps and this, this belligerent response. And I, I would imagine that they would have had a strong urge to speak up and disagree with Phoebe, because she's there representing Paul to human they're interacting with this. And some of these ideas would have been crazy for them. But she continues, and I think she would eventually say, this isn't in the letter, I think this is probably just what she said. Close your mouths. The law has shut up all and made all accountable to God. There is no defense for your sin. Regardless of your circumcision, regardless of your following of the other parts of the Mosaic Code, regardless of you not meeting each sacrifice, meat sacrifice to idols, Regardless of your observance of the Sabbath, regardless of any other good work that you may do from the Torah, none of it addresses the fact that you are a sinner. I think she would have had some sort of a statement like that. And I would imagine that silence would have filled the room. You see, what happened is that the Jews, even though they had believed in Jesus, the saints here in Rome, they had taken their advantage, and this occurred throughout, this is the whole nation, the book, of the, the book of Acts has this story repeated. The Jews took their advantage that God gave them, and they turned it into privilege. Rather than seeing the advantage as God's grace to them, they took it 
and elevated themselves and how they thought about themselves in relationship to other nations. And so they formed these stereotypes, these judgments, um, and even used the good law that God had given them to solidify their judgments and their stereotypes of others could solidify their elevated sense of their own righteousness compared to other nations. And they boasted in it. They boasted in the law. The law is setting us apart. The law is making us better. Because the law is what they sensed gave them their superiority over others. Last week, Deirdre brought up white privilege and racism. And we had, a, I think, a really great uh, time of comments and questions afterward. It's a obviously a a heated issue. Well, privilege and racism are just two consequences of the problem that is at the heart of what Paul is addressing. Throughout all times and places and cultures, societies and individuals have used whatever they can. (laughs) They have taken every opportunity to elevate themselves above others. What we do. We want to imagine that we are in a privileged place over others, and we want to use that privilege uh, to boast ourselves up. We've used skin color, economics, our intellect, politics, military, morals, where we live, where we go to school, what kind of cars we drive, what kind of clothes we wear, what kind of vacations we go on, our religions, what kind of food we eat or don't eat, etc., we could go keep going down the lists. Everything that God has created, we have turned it into something that we boast in ourselves about. That's what chapter 1 talks about. We worship and serve the created things rather than the creator himself. And so we are getting our meaning and our sense of identity from these things. And we boast in ourselves because of the sense that we have of being elevated. And it's this boasting and the elevated state of our minds that brings us to that boasting that Paul is trying to correct. And so what is boasting? The dictionary gives this, the definition, excessively proud and self-satisfied talk about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. So that's the dictionary term or form. And I found a, a website. There's this website called Less Penguiny. I I don't understand why they named it that. I couldn't find a good reason. LessPenguiny.com. And it's a website, the author is devoted to uncovering and articulating what he or she considers the hidden rules behind everyday social interactions. So it's a little bit less of a technical understanding. This person is not a social scientist or anything like that. It's just trying to put some things down that they observe. And... This website defines boasting or bragging in this way. Personally imposing what you believe to be status-elevating thoughts. Okay, that's all one word. What you believe to be status-elevating thoughts on your audience. He or she has identified 17 different ways that we boast. I'm not going to go into all 17. But I want to give some examples. There's the basic bragging, which is directly telling others how and why you are so great. Hey, I have a 4.0 GPA after, you know, my senior year and going into college. 
Right? That would be just somebody that just walks around stating how good they are and why. Then there's the humble brag. Oh, I just ruined my 4.0 GPA with that A minus. Then there's the prop that brag. You engineer your surroundings so that your possessions, your environment, your situation does the bragging for you, right? And then there's the race to the bottom brag. You win at losing by besting others on how awful things are for you. We've, we've, there's some great videos and examples of all 17. And you look through all 17 like, you know what? I, I probably am guilty of most of those, if not all. There are several reasons we boast and brag about ourselves. Feeling small. A feeling that you're just not good enough, and so you need to boast and brag to give you a greater sense of yourself. Self-promotion. The desire to communicate your value. We feel we've got to advertise ourselves. When we feel a fear of abandonment, we elevate ourselves and we brag about ourselves so the people around us can think more highly of us and maybe even want to be like us, and they stay close to us then. If we're somebody admirable, if we're somebody attractive, we'll keep people close to us, and so we brag to do that. Some of us have an obsession with dominance and that we actually enjoy belittling others. And there are probably others. I think all of us can probably relate to those. But what are the side effects? What happens when we boast? Well, biologically, there's research that actually shows that when we say something good about ourselves to others, there's this little burst of dopamine that makes us feel good. And then when we get a response back that's positive, the same thing happens. And all of us, okay, if you've ever had any sort of social media account, can vouch for at least observing this if you haven't done it yourself. Second, when we boast, it has the tendency to make those around us feel lesser about themselves, or at least jealous and envious. Then that amplifies our sense of superiority, which is at the heart of the boast. And third, if, it's, if, it's a, if, it's an, if the object of our boasting is really central to our hearts and our sense of self and identity, we start to project, excuse me, we start to protect that which we are boasting about. And from this, sin and injustices emerge against others that we perceive as threats, to what, what we perceive as making us whole or complete. So if you just take the examples, any sexism or racism, all right, or, or economic discrimination, you have an elevated sense of your race or your color or your finances or your gender, and so because that's what you identify with, you feel threatened, you're going to protect it, which means you're going to put down others that are coming against you that are different. So, I mean, the, the, the range on how we respond to these can be quite great. But if you have individuals and societies and cultures that are feeling this way, you, that's when you begin to see systematic injustices culture-wide. There's a culture of protecting something that we are putting our, our status into. This is why there's so much division in politics. So though there are six different pillars, and we've talked about this for a while, there are six different pillars of morality that we tend to um, use to, to put us into a, a religious or a political camp. 
even though there are six, the, the, the left pick a few and the right pick a few. And this gives each side a sense of moral superiority over the others because there are things that we hold in value that the other group is not. If we were able to hold all six pillars in equal tension, as individuals or even as a society, we could avoid division and we would actually come close to what our understanding of justice should be. But we can't do it. We can't do it, and it's for a reason that, that, that political scientists and social psychologists and, and scientists around this have, have also seen. In our desire for moral superiority and righteousness, we also see that we are driven towards a self-righteousness, which means that we, we, we intentionally and long to put ourselves above others. In doing this, we are able to think good about ourselves and the moral values that we hold, which helps us mask where we feel insecure and weak and vulnerable. We need enemies to be against, for that is when we feel justified for what we value as right and good and true. Our longing for righteousness coupled with our lack of it and the realization of it presses us to boast, to stereotype, to judge, to commit injustices against each other, all in the name of pursuing good. Here are the good things that I'm pursuing, and it legitimizes how we oppress others. Earlier in the letter, and Tim read this passage, Paul makes a statement that I find to be one of the most motivating and also troubling statements Paul makes in all of his letters. God will render to each according to his works. Chapter 2, verse 6. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, the, that sounds like God's going to judge us for our works. And that's exactly what he's saying. Exactly what he's saying. But he's also saying that it is a good thing to pursue glory and honor and immortality. We should seek to rid ourselves of a low opinion of ourselves. We should seek to be respectable and honorable in the eyes of other people. It's, it's not a bad thing. We should seek to be great. We should. Paul says, if you, with patience in doing well, seek for glory and honor and immortality. I mean, it sounds like you know, an ancient Roman or Greek or Spartan charge. Hey, glory and honor and immortality, let's go for it. Paul says that is good. But the passage clearly indicates that there are selfishly ambitious ways of doing this and that there are virtuous ways of doing this. So the question is, how can we fulfill that? How can we fulfill this desire that we have to be good and great and honorable and yet avoid the inevitable lapse and dive into self-righteousness judgment, and oppression. And so this is where Paul gets to in this passage. All people are under the weight of sin. All people should shut their mouths in accountability to God. And so you're left kind of like, well, 
how can we become righteous? If even the, the good law that God gives causes us to be self-righteous and judgmental. Well, he says now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So what does this passage say? Well, first of all, Paul isn't just dealing with a, this uh, uh, out-there understanding of God's character. He's saying the righteousness of God is available for people. For people. For all who believe. This is something that God wants to give us. This is, the que- this is the answer to the question, well, how do I become righteous? How do I become great and immortal and honorable without sliding into self-righteousness and oppression? Well, we have to have the righteousness. It's something that God gives us. It is something that God gives us. Well, what is this? What is this? Several weeks ago, we looked at the definition of righteousness from various sources, including the Bible, but history, philosophy, sociology, ancient, modern. And I think that there are six things that kind of hold it all together. Lawrence is going to put these on the screen here. First of all, I think that, one, God's righteousness is, in essence, what we all long and pursue. The social scientists say the same thing. We are all longing for righteousness. We are obsessed with it. Second, the possession of a wisdom for a well-lived life. We, we have an idea of what would, a good life would be. Two, the experience of being respected and honored. We want people to think good about us. Nothing wrong with that. The experience of loving and being loved. Having a purpose and a work to contribute to, to our families, to our societies. And then hope in a future world of peace and justice and equity. Now, if we take a look at these, we can see some tr- certain truths. We long for all of these and, and to some degree experience them. But we are imperfect people and we make mistakes that are embarrassing and bring shame. We can love, but oftentimes our love is incomplete and the love we receive is incomplete and we feel lonely all right, and we feel guilty and ashamed. We see ourselves as being able to work and we produce and do good things that brings good things to us and to other people, but we also see failures in our work and people abusing our work or taking advantage of our work or undermining our work. We see in our world evidence of, of honesty and justice and sacrifice and fairness, but we also see the opposite of these things. And sometimes it seems like the, the public virtues we would love to see are just hanging by a thread. And at any moment, tyranny and oppression is going to take over. C.S. Lewis said that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I would tweak it a little bit and say that there are aspects of the righteousness of God that he has put within us as being image bearers, but, it, but there is a corruption And so I would say, yeah, it's going to have to come from another world. This world cannot produce the righteousness of God. But it is God's intent that it would be present in this world. What we are longing for is the righteousness of God. When the Bible teaches that the righteousness of God has been manifested for all 
who believe, it's not just talking about God making us moral. It's not just God making us virtuous so that because we're perfect, God can now dwell with us. That's not what it's talking about. It's part of it. It's part of it. It's saying that God has essentially made himself knowable. God has made himself knowable. He has revealed himself. His character, his wisdom, his creativity, his power, his purposes, his relationships, love, his wrath, grace. Everything that he is and all that he is doing is making that available to us. That we can know and experience him and all that he is doing. To have the righteousness of God is to be one with God in all ways. It's to be one with God. Which includes our moral selves, but it's a whole lot more. So how did God reveal it? How did God reveal it? Obviously, there are a lot of questions that come from this. All will unfold more of what this means. How do we experience this unity? How do we become virtuous and good? How do we experience his love and power and faithfulness? How do we become a part of his work so that, so that our work is refined and has eternal significance? Paul answers all of these questions as he goes and unfolds the rest of the book. But the first question that Paul's wanting to address here is how did God make this righteousness available? How did God make his righteousness available? There are seven aspects to it. The first thing is that it's apart from law. Paul said, listen, law reveals sin. It doesn't create righteousness. The Bible here, or the text says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it, which means that they told about the unveiling of God's righteousness through this promised son. But the laws within the Bible do not create righteousness. It's our self-righteousness, our desire for self-righteousness that sees a rule and says, hey, I can do that and be better than others. But Paul will explain more of that in chapter 7. Second, so that's the first thing. It doesn't come through law. Second, it comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So this, this verse here where it says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Not, apart from the law, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, most translations say, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a redundant phrase through faith in Jesus for all who believe. The better translation, and most scholars are affirming this at this point, the better translation is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a different meaning. It's recognizing that Jesus was the faithful human being. And our trust, our trust in the faithful human being is, is, is what gains us righteousness. What was Jesus faithful to? He was faithful to God. He obeyed God. He trusted God. He fulfilled the calling that God put upon his life. Whereas humanity failed in their faithfulness to God, and this is the story of Israel, and when they were prevented from going into the land, God said, it's because you did not believe in me that I'm keeping you from the land in Numbers chapter 15. It wasn't because of disobedience. The disobedience was a result of their faithlessness. Jesus was faithful. And in his success, he made the righteousness of God available to all humanity. So it's apart from law. Second, it comes to the faithfulness of Jesus. Third, it comes through belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. 
through faith. Now, next week, chapter 4, it's all about faith. So we're going to really do a deep dive into what faith is. Not through law, it's through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ through, and belief in that. Fourth, it is made available to everyone. Not just a privileged group of a few. Everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is, is again, absolutely it's transgressions against God's law. But it's also just the general state of humanity being pathetic and weak. Biologically, genetically, okay, any way of missing the mark or falling short. All of the weaknesses that are reflected in us as humans, that's sin. Transgressions are violations. In every way, in our, in our transgressions and in just the general frailty and weakness of humanity. You know, I got, a, I got an email this week. Uh, a friend of mine, he's a, another, he's a church planner in, in uh, the McAllister Groveland area of St. Paul. He's a young man, he's got kids. Planted this church, I think in 2010. He's got stage four cancer. Out of the blue, he's probably 10 years younger than I am. That's sin. Now, he didn't do anything to get it, but it's sin. In all ways, we fall short. And in, 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 in all people groups. And so it's available to everyone. Fifth, it's, av- it's made available to us through justification. So justification, if you can think of a law court, when a judge renders a verdict, he's decided, declares someone innocent, someone righteous. That's the idea. We don't come to God because we're perfect. Obviously, all have sinned. We come to God through faith. Through faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. And because of that faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous. That's justification. And he writes, states that in justification, something new is created. And it's indeed true. The new thing is the new you. You have been declared righteous. You have been given the righteousness of God. All of the things that we long for and strive for, it has been given to you. The potential for you to become that has been given because of the declaration that Jesus makes upon your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Sixth, we are justified by his grace as a gift. It is not something that we can attain. It's something that we have to receive just as if we would receive a gift. To think and live as if we can earn the righteousness of God is to live and to act and to think that God owes us something. It's preposterous. I'll never forget this conversation I had with a young man when I was on campus at Iowa State. He says, you know, we were sharing a gospel with him and he was a good friend, and we did a lot of stuff with him, and we would occasionally have these conversations, and he said, you know, I, I can't come to God until I'm worthy to. He, he, he was broken, and he was contrite, and he was sad and miserable over his sin, but he believed that he would have to get to a place where God owed him, which is arrogance, preposterous. We're not, we're not good. We're not righteous. God's grace gift to us is out of his love and his faithfulness. Seventh, while it's free, through faith, it did come at a cost. 
Would we want to receive a gift that costs the giver nothing? What kind of a gift would that be? What kind of a righteousness would that be? Token? Our sinfulness made us fall short of God's glory, and so our sinfulness has to be redeemed if we are to come into life and righteousness. It has to be paid for. And God paid for it through his son. Jesus Christ was the payment. And it says it was his blood that was shed as a propitiation. Propitiation, a challenging word, and it's not the best translation. Nobody really has a, the best word for it, but it basically the idea is that um, the blood was the means through which the redemption was paid. The means through which what propitiation means. The blood was paid to give us the righteousness of God. The Jewish audience would have immediately connected with that because all throughout the Mosaic law are these requirements that, that the blood of animals needed to be shed to, to atone for human sin. When humanity transgressed God, transgressed against God through the taking of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity brought death upon itself. It ended the life-giving connection that we had with God. And that connection needed to be restored. To give humanity life, something had to take humanity's death. It had to be paid for. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be justice without a payment that meant and cost something. The death of animals and their blood redeemed humanity's sin, but only partially. And only temporarily, sacrifices were repeated over and over and over, daily, monthly, annually. They could never fully atone. That's why later in the passage, Paul says they passed over. So those are the seven ways. Those are the seven aspects of the righteousness coming to us. And in it, he says, God's righteousness is then revealed. And there are three ways that he does this. First, it showed that God's righteousness is, is revealed in that there was finally an adequate payment for the sins that were committed. If God is going to be just, there had to be justice. Payment for sins had to be paid. The animals were not adequate sacrifices. God knew that. Because animals are not made in God's image. They're not humans. The violence committed by the image bearers of God required an image bearer to pay for their sin. People were dying for their sins. They were suffering the consequences of their sins, just like we suffer the consequence of our sins. But death doesn't redeem. Jesus' death as the faithful human redeemed. God had also made promises to these very people. God made promises to man and woman in the garden. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and all the Old Testament people. So he, he had to be just in paying for sin, but he also has to be just and righteous in fulfilling his promises. So he, see, God can hold all of these things in tension where human, humans can't. He can be just and he can be merciful. And both are aspects of righteousness. And he shows his justice in the death of his son, and he shows his faithfulness to his promises and his love and his mercy through the death of his son. 
Second, it showed God's righteousness in providing justice for the sins committed by those after Jesus' death. And so there were all of, there was all of the people that believed in God and had faith in God prior to Jesus. Their sins hadn't been paid for yet. They were passed over through the animal sacrifices. So Jesus took care of them when he died. And then for all of us who have been born and lived after Jesus, Jesus has also paid for those sins. And third, this also shows God's righteousness and his faithfulness to all future people and all of the nations because God is now able to justify and put righteousness upon all of the nations through Jesus. He took care of the sins previously committed. He took care of the sins that would be committed later. In justice, in payment for sin, in consequence, and in his faithfulness and in his love and in his mercy. He can hold all of these things together. And so then he confronts the boasting. So then after explaining that we can have the righteousness of God and where it is and where it comes from, by God's grace as a gift through the blood of Jesus and our faith in that. Nothing that we have done. Nothing that we have done. So then he says, where then is our boasting? And I love it. Where then is our boasting? Not where then is your boasting? Where then is my boast? Where then is our, we are all boasters. We are all striving to elevate ourselves over others. So Paul comes back to his primary concern. He says, our boasting, it is excluded. It is eliminated. There is no foundation for our boasting before God or for, before anybody else. He says, are, are there laws that forbid boasting? No, not in the Mosaic Code. But there is a law of faith against it. The law of faith teaches that our faith in God is what gives us our righteousness, not obedience to any sort of law. Once again, elevating the fact that the two laws that he's already talked about in chapter 10, since we're going from back to front, he said there are two laws in the law of Moses. There's the law, there's the Mosaic Code, and then there is the law of faith. Paul is elevating and saying, listen, the law of faith is the ultimate law. And so he's once again pushing us towards this law of faith in that it completely removes our ability or need to boast. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living a life that always has this strong sense of self that you never feel weak or vulnerable or in need of boasting or elevating yourself over others? My goodness. God provided his righteousness. So then what do we do about the law? They said, well, do we abolish or wipe out the law? Paul says, no. On the contrary, since the purpose of the law is to generate faith, which is what we're going to see a lot in next week. Since the purpose of the law is to generate faith, and we have come to Christ through faith, we are now able to follow God obediently. Remember the purpose of Paul? He says, I am striving to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. So now we can obey. Now we can obey. Fulfilling the law. So what does boasting reveal about, our, reveal about ourselves? A few things. If we boast or find ourselves boasting or hear others boasting, we know that we don't feel good about ourselves. Receiving the righteousness of God can change that. Second, it's a sign that internally we want to be set above others. 
receiving the righteousness of God changes that. Third, somehow if we, if we are boasting or bragging in ourselves or we see others doing it, we are missing God's righteousness for us. We either don't have it because we've never believed in Jesus' work for us, or we are ignorant of it, which means we don't know. If you don't know. If you don't know the righteousness that God has given you and how to appropriate it, you can't live it. Or third, we know of it, but we're not renewing our minds in it. Because you know, later in chapter 12, we need to renew our minds. Do not think too highly or too lowly of yourself. If you don't have it, you don't have the righteousness of God through Christ. You need to know that it's what you're ultimately longing for. It's the ultimate conclusion to your search for worth, for honor, for affection from others, for meaning and purpose, for a hope and a certain good in, a fu- in the future. God has checked all of the boxes that you're striving for. I literally had somebody tell me that once. I was encouraging them in these ideas. They said, you know, I've checked all the boxes and I am still empty. It was their boxes, not God's boxes. If you think that you have it but aren't living it, but your bragging or your desire to brag reveals it, then you need to go back to where we were at in chapter 12. Renew your minds. Renew your minds. You have the righteousness of God. God has given you his righteousness. There's no need to brag. There's no need to elevate yourself. There's no, le- there's no need to think that you are in a place of privilege over others to feel good about yourself. God is calling you to be in a place of steadfast confidence in his righteousness. And your gifts and your talents and your resources or what you perceive to be a lack of talents or gifts or resources, those aren't to be used for yourself. They have been given to you by God You are in Christ with the righteousness of God. Whatever you have or whatever you don't think you have have been given to you or not given to you for the service of others. We are not to use them for our own selves and therefore brag about who we are, how great we are. We find ourselves boasting or bragging. It's it's one of the most prevalent and obvious signs that we are constantly in need of the righteousness of God, even as Christians, but we need to renew our minds in it. Let me pray.